Praise, praise the Lord, everybody. Would you grab your Bible and let's stand? We're going to be teaching tonight on the book of Hebrews, and we're back. Uh, we're doing this every quarter, two or three chapters a quarter. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 7. And so we, and I'm going to, it's very controversial. Uh, I've known for months that we'd get to Hebrews 7 and that we would, I would have to uh, do what I'm doing. But I have a position about Melchizedek that is uh, not the position that I have held all through my ministry because I was first a Trinitarian, Assembly of God, Church of God. Then I embraced the oneness, and so I have all that background, and then I had a particular view about Hebrews 7 and Melchizedek and so on that I was taught and believed and felt comfortable with, but through the years, I have grown uncomfortable with my position on Melchizedek. So tonight, in a sense, uh, Brother French, did you take Hebrews from me in college? All right, so Brother French... Studied Hebrews with me in college, got credit for it, and graduated with a bachelor's degree. And I do not hold the position tonight that I did. Uh, what year did you graduate? No, you were born in 83. What year did you graduate? Anyway, he doesn't know when he graduated, but, um, but I don't, I'm, not, I'm not teaching tonight, 2007, all right? So nine years later, I have made the decision that this is my position. This is how I feel. And, uh, and I haven't had to actually teach it, but I'm going to teach it tonight. So I'd like us to pray before we read. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study of Hebrews. Could we do that? We just praise him. Father, we ask you tonight to help us. Bless the word of God. Bless our hearts. We thank you tonight. I pray that you will give us strength and allow us to see the value, Lord, of this lesson tonight on Melchizedek. And your spirit be with us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Everyone said, in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Now, I'd like us to read the last three verses of Hebrews 6 together. Shall we read it out loud at verse 18? Here we go. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie... We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. And you may be seated. So we are looking now at Hebrews 7 and verse 1. Now, to give us a platform for considering Melchizedek, which of course is the very last word of chapter 6, which is another reason for reading it. So we are to lay hold upon the hope set before us. How many knows that that's true? We need to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. How many are thankful for the two that received the Holy Ghost Sunday morning? They're brand new, so their hope is just beginning. 
What you have to be careful about is that you can lose sight of your hope. You can get discouraged. You can get weary and so forth. Uh, you can get tired. You can get discouraged. We're living in a day when you hear the kind of culture that we're in that 49 people were killed in one shooting by someone for whatever. It doesn't matter what the reason is. It matters only in the sense that, uh, of course, it, that's important. But it matters not in the end that we're in a world where this is now the largest mass shooting of its kind. We're seeing a world where people are actually, um, well, I believe people are really starting to evaluate what is happening in our world, what's going on in our world, when the definition of marriage is completely eradicated, when we're living in a world where people are, they're troubled and they don't know where to turn, there is an anchor. Can you say an anchor? An anchor, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this quickly, but I, what Hebrews is telling us is that anchor goes into heaven because heaven is being described as the holy place. In other words, there was the earthly tabernacle, but there's also a heavenly tabernacle. How many understand what I'm saying? Can you say amen? Praise God. There's a heavenly tabernacle. And so that holy place in heaven, there's an anchor that goes from, from us right into the holy of holies or into the holy place in heaven. Whither the forerunner, that is Jesus, is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> now, of course, this question uh, of the Melchizedek, and this is the last time you're going to see Melchizedek spelled with, a, with the English spelling. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the uh, New Testament spelling. Because when you translate it from Hebrew, and you know I teach Hebrew, you know I teach Greek, so that's not new. But if you translate Melchizedek in from the Hebrew, your letters come out slightly differently. And in the, in the, when you do it from the Greek, you tend to tra uh, transliterate it with an S and a C, but the Hebrew doesn't do it. And so you end up with a... a, a a Z and a K in the Hebrew. So for now on, I, since I typically type it, and I've typed every word of these, what you're looking at, I type myself just because I wanted to say, I don't want to be uh, stuttering up here about what I'm saying about Melchizedek. I don't give a rip if anybody believes it or believes like I do. What I care about is the word of God is telling me and talking to me it's God's word and I'm trying to understand it as best I can and I've been told by many a scholar who Melchizedek was and I've come to believe they are absolutely wrong Melchizedek is not just some guy that disappeared back there in the Old Testament and Jesus happens to uh, have a nice little type that he's, he's after his order no sir, no I don't believe that anymore Melchizedek is a very important and prominent individual in the entire scheme of things and there must be a reason for that more than just well he uh, nobody knew who his mother was you ever known someone that you didn't know if they were still living or not anybody or how many about how about all the people you don't know if they're dead or alive you say well i don't know if they died because i didn't get their obituary uh so uh, 
this is the idea that many scholars suggest. In fact, I would say today the majority of scholars suggest that Melchizedek didn't have a... The reason he didn't have a beginning or an ending is he really did have a beginning or an ending, but we just don't know what it was. That's the basic answer. I no longer believe that. I've decided that I'm going to apply to Hebrews 7 exactly what I apply to every scripture. I'm going to interpret it literally. And so here we go. So Jesus is made... And high priest forever. Everyone say forever. Because forever really is the key word. Although I've not highlighted here. Made in high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. And of course we've already seen Hebrews 6. And chapter 5 and so on. Of course Melchizedek comes up in chapter 5. Twice. But here's where he's really discussed. And we're not going to get all the way through 7. Because I'm going to spend my time explaining. Why I believe Melchizedek is who I believe him to be. But, of course, the basic premise is that the Levitical priesthood could never do what the priesthood of Jesus could do. And how many knows that there's nobody like Jesus? Praise God. Anybody ashamed of Jesus here tonight? You just, you're just so ashamed of him that you, you're not willing to stand. Hey, folks, it's time to stand up and be counted. It's time to love the truth. It's time to stand for truth. We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to be big shots. We don't have to be uh, tough guys. We just have to stand up for the truth. Love God and love the truth. Hey, folks, you can love people and still preach the truth. You can love them. You don't have to agree with every sinner that comes down the road, but you can still love them. Just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean you can't love them. Someone said, well, they're mouthy. They, they're you know, and well, hey, lots of folks are lots, lots of folks are like that. But it is not my responsibility to keep somebody from being mouthy. But it is my responsibility to love that person. And when you truly love, how many knows if you truly love someone, you're going to tell them the truth. Now we're living in a lying. I, I would say the number one. I'm 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 melting metaphors here. The number one problem with our culture today is lying and deception, which Jesus predicted the last days. I believe we're in the last days. I really do, and I'm not going to tell you I don't. I believe that we are in the last days. I believe the rapture could happen before this service is over. That's how close I believe we are. And if it doesn't happen for 100 years, then that's not my business. But I am telling you that I believe the Lord to to, to be coming soon. This is a generation that needs to get ready for the coming of the Lord. Can you clap your hands and say, thank you, Jesus? Hallelujah. So we need to take seriously who Jesus is. And the Levitical priesthood ended, and of course that's the whole point of Hebrews, is that the Levitical priesthood, in other words, the law, the Jewish law, ended. Someone said, well, that's offensive to Jews. Well, of course it is. You're saying that the Jewish way of salvation is now ended and there's a new hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. That's exactly what I preach. I don't believe Buddha gets you to heaven. I never did. I never one time said, Buddha, will you get to the heaven? And I know, I know other religions that speak to me. And they say, well, I don't agree with Fine. I understand you don't agree with uh, For example, we'll sit down and talk about one, one uh, religion, religious uh, uh, leader was talking to me about how the blood of Jesus couldn't possibly save anybody's soul. And I could have run screaming out of the building. 
And I said, no, you're, you're wrong about that. You may have a PhD and you may be really smart, but you're absolutely wrong. We, we were able to disagree and say, okay, you believe that you're saved by some other means. And I'm telling you right now, you well, what do you think, Talmadge? All right, I'll tell you what I think. I think if you do not have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your soul, you are lost. You have no way to be saved. You will not. Oh, you mean, you mean I'm not going to have, I mean, you're not. Okay, let's define it. You're lost, meaning, here's the definition, you will not go to heaven. You are not going to heaven if you do not have the shed blood. Well, what if, what if he said, I'm just, I'm giving you our conversation. So what if he said, if the blood of Jesus is applied to me through Buddha? I said, well, what if? Where'd you get that? I knew exactly where we got it, but I wanted to hear, have him say it. Well, the blood of Jesus could be applied if someone has, let's say you're, let's say you're an atheist or, you, oh no, he, no, that's not what he said. He didn't say that. I'm sorry. He said, what if you worshiped a totem pole and you were sincere? The blood of Jesus could be applied to you because your faith in the totem pole is the same as having faith in Jesus. I said, do you, you honestly believe that? He said, yeah, I do. I believe people are going to be saved by their own uh, oh, sort of like they're whatever. I forget the word. But anyway, they're saved because they're good or they're saved because they if they decide they're going to worship the sun or let's say you will worship Thor, the Norse God or so. All those people are saved because they worship some God. I said, you know what? That wouldn't that be interesting if it, it didn't matter who you worship, you could worship a devil, you could worship. A, but but let me tell you what I think. There's one God. You got to worship that God. And that God is Jesus Christ. He came in flesh. He died on a cross. His blood was shed. He didn't shed his blood so you could worship a Norse God. He shed his blood so he could wash your sins away. That's why he shed his blood. So there's no other arrangement. Now, what these Jewish priests were in trouble with is that they thought they could go back to the Levitical priesthood and that would save them. And Paul, who I think wrote it, said no. All right, now let's keep going. So what's important here is that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. So let's go to the next slide, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to move right along. Now, I need you to turn with me to Genesis 14, even though it's right up here. But uh, it'd be nice if you'd just turn. It, it, it is a Bible for a reason. And so if you could look with me at verse 18, I'm jumping into the middle of the introduction of Melchizedek. In fact, there are only... Two places in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is discussed. The one is here in Genesis, and the other is a prophecy. I'm going to call it a prophecy. I realize, folks, will some people would think it would be best described as something else, but I, I'm choosing to call it a prophecy. The, a prophecy in the Psalm, Psalm 110. We'll go to it in a moment. But look at verse 18. Because we're asking the question, who is Melchizedek? And there are three verses and only three verses now in the, about Melchizedek in Genesis. And, of course, this is just before God calls Abraham. He's still called Abram. He is getting ready to become what we might call the father of Israel, or the father of the faithful. He's about to become father of many nations and so forth. But but he is uh, he doesn't really know his full destiny. And and for many years, I just thought Melchizedek was this kind of an unknown oddity that slips out of the 
somewhere. He's the king of Salem, which, by the way, is almost definitely Jerusalem. And I'm, I'm just going to go on record on everything. I don't care if someone thinks it's Acapulco. It is Salem is another expression. I know the word Salem in this case is a Canaanite word. I know that when David conquered Jerusalem, it was already called Jerusalem. We're not here to go in a whole study of why it became known as Jerusalem. But the word Salem or or, uh, uh, the word for peace in Hebrew, uh, I'm trying to say the word Salem, of course, the city itself is connected to the word peace. Everyone say peace. And Jerusalem, of course, before it was Jerusalem, most scholars, I mean, almost to, uh, 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 to, the, to the end of, of the list, say that that was indeed Jerusalem, which, of course, we know where Jerusalem is. There, was a, there were many uh, uh, areas, princes around Jerusalem and around the Dead Sea that were warring, and they kidnapped Abraham's nephew Lot he had been very near Sodom and most people believe that when Sodom was destroyed and the salt and so forth which was a salt mining area that it sunk beneath I've never read I do not know of a scholar when I was working on my PhD in England the the fellow that I got to know the most was working on his PhD studying whether or not Sodom sank beneath the Dead Sea and and so forth he believed that you could live a gay life that god that there was nothing wrong with homosexuality and he was writing his phd on it he was trying to explain that when god said that uh, certain things he didn't really mean that and so forth and he was spending several years trying to find where sodom was because if you could find it and so i think they almost all scholars now agree that i know of i know there may be a couple up on uh, somewhere that don't but they think that it's beneath the dead sea you're never going to find it unless you go beneath the dead sea and so it was that these kings went to war. It doesn't matter their names. Their names are interesting. And that one of them, uh, they kidnapped and took all of the, uh, of the uh, gold and silver and so forth of the king of Sodom and his allies, of which there were uh, three or four. And that got Abraham completely riled up. Now, I've come to believe that the reason that uh, God used this moment to, um, to introduce him, uh, and I don't know for sure that he was actually introduced here because we only have three verses, so that doesn't mean that he never met Melchizedek before. I'm not going to make that statement. What I'm saying, though, is that the reason all we get is this little tidbit about Melchizedek, and yet the entire plan of blood redemption and its superiority over every other salvation is that God intended to show us that he was bigger he was bigger than our theology and he was bigger than all of the orders and the religions of the world. And God himself, everyone say God, stepped into the pages of Genesis. Not just a man, but God himself. So let me read. So he, Abraham goes and rescues Lot and one uh, Hebrews calls it the slaughter of the king. So that means then that the that was a pretty much of a massacre. He went, he got Lot, he got everything, he had all those riches, but he had made a vow. See, this is what we don't have time to deal with. He had made a vow. He would not keep any of it, but he tithed to Melchizedek. 
That is to say, the most important man in all of the region, and in fact in the world, because he became the father of God's people, the nation of Israel, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then renamed Israel, that God, as much as he had invested in Abraham, he had then decided in, how many knows that God can do what he wants to do? And how many knows that God's got a plan, even when nobody else understands it, and he doesn't have to explain it to me or to you? That's why I think a lot of theologians don't think that Melchizedek is who the Bible says he was. And we keep trying to fudge and say, well, he didn't. He, he, he had parents. The Bible says he didn't, but he, oh, he had to have parents. One guy told and I and I, I, I've said it for many years. He had to have had parents. That Bible said he didn't. Okay, so, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth... Here's Abraham coming back from Haslot and all this stuff. He's going to tithe. He's got all these things. He, he, the king of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. That is in Canaan, where they were not servants of the most high God. In Salem or Jerusalem, There was a priest of the Most High God. Therefore, we see that he was what? Both a king and a priest, which, of course, is very much like Jesus. In fact, if you look at the bottom of this overlay, I've said that he is the most perfect type of Jesus of any individual in the Bible. And most people think that's it, that he just is a type of Jesus. In other words, everything about Melchizedek is exactly like what we see in the, in the person of Jesus. He was a king and a priest, whereas under the law of Moses, you could not be uh, both a king and a priest. And under the law of Moses, you had to be from the family of Aaron or a Levite, and then you could be a priest. And then... He, Melchizedek, was divinely appointed priest of the true God in in an idolatrous land and for the benefit of Abraham. Abraham was a servant of the Most High God. Now, uh, let's go to the next overlay um, and let's keep reading. Verse 19, and uh, we'll see if we can... uh, Here we are. And he blessed him, so Melchizedek demonstrates that here we are in a land where the most powerful man, he's just defeated the entire network of kings. And and notice what, let's read, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Does anybody feel like we serve a mighty God here tonight? (laughs) He's the possessor. Now that Hebrew word possessor makes me want to preach a little bit, but I'm going to just go. I'm not going to do it. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. So blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. There may be other gods in this world, but there is nobody like our God. We serve a mighty God. Hallelujah. I don't know who you're serving and what you're serving, but it does not compare to the God that is the God of heaven. Hallelujah. Verse 20. And blessed be the most high God, listen, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. In other words, what I'm saying, just three verses, that God allowed this great big hoopla about Lot and the kings and the slaughter and all that 
because he wanted to demonstrate to Abraham that I'm going to miraculously do the work that needs to be done to bring Israel into this land. And then the Bible says Abraham of Abraham, he gave him tithes of all. Now, look, if you would, at the bottom of this overlay, I'm beginning to talk about something that's brand new to me. I've, I've made a, a final decision. I'm actually teaching it now. Therefore, I'm saying Melchizedek, everyone say Melchizedek. Of course, that's a word that means king of righteousness. So he was king of righteousness. His name, of course, the Hebrew word for king is Melech or Melech. And uh, that's the very beginning of the word Melchizedek. But, but besides that, here we see that by what we have just read, and, and you just think about it. Don't, you don't have to you know, weigh in yet. Just let, let me get through a few verses here in Hebrews. Melchizedek could be nothing less. You getting it? Okay. Words mean something. He could be nothing less than a unique human priestly king. He couldn't be anything less than that. Because that that would mean then, if he were just a human being, okay, that's what he was, just a human being, then that man, that human man, could be nothing less than a unique priestly king that had been specifically appointed in other words, ordained to be as much like Jesus as any human being that could ever live. It's not by accident. There's no way it's by accident that this man's there and here he is, a king and a priest and all the rest. And he's the priest of the Most High God in a basically, let's say, an idolatrous region. And that God is getting ready to pull Jerusalem right up. He's the king of Jerusalem. I'm just, I am tired of supposing that he's just an ordinary man. But if he were, he would be specifically divinely appointed to establish Christ's future spiritual order. In other words, God did it in order to set a, in place the, the order in which Christ would be a priest. Or he would have to be God himself. As a theophany. Everyone say theophany. Which of course is Greek for uh, God. Theos is the word for God. So here we have a theophany. Now, many, many people have believed in theophanies. I believe in theophanies. I just never would admit that I had to yield to the possibility that uh, Melchizedek was a theophany. Now let's, um, let's go to the next overlay. Now, I want to look at two things and then respond with two things. First of all, concerns regarding Melchizedek as a theophany. Things that still have weighed in my mind. Things that originally uh, I wouldn't even teach what I'm teaching tonight because I could not feel comfortable answering it. The first one is that God appeared also to Abram in Genesis 18... So that's only four chapters away. As a theophany. Okay, no doubt about it. I mean, there's no question there. Now, the question is, for example, if you, let's say you ask me, which, let's say you, let's say everybody in this room is asking me. 
I'm hoping you want to know the answer because that's what I'm teaching on tonight. All right, that the question is, who is Melchizedek? And if I were to say he's a theophany of God, then that would be a deduction that I've made. There's no scripture that says Melchizedek is a theophany of God. Okay? And I, I'm, I've just told you that he's either divinely called to be so much like Jesus, it's unbelievable, uh, or mind-boggling, or whatever. I've expressed it in other words. Or he must be a theophany of God because what we're about to read does not allow for anything less. He's either divinely, a man so divinely appointed that he is exactly like Jesus himself in every particular. And Abraham comes to him. Now there's, there are questions, of course. I'm not saying every, uh, that we can uh, fully grasp how a theophany is even, uh, 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 how there can even be a theophany. I think that's the problem, by the way. So my first concern, I'm going to call it a concern, or some people would have this concern, is that God appeared to Abram as a theophany. How do we know that? Anybody remember that in in Genesis 18? How did he do it? How did he do it? He's going to tell them what? That they're going to what? Have a child even though they're old. And God comes with two angels. And the Bible says when they came to the tent, Genesis 18, that there were three men. Everyone say three men. So we could, I think we can deduct from that that they looked exactly like men. We know that two were angels and one was God. How do we know that? How do we know one of them was God? Anybody? Just kind of praise God. Just somebody shout it out. Because... The Bible tells me so. Because the Bible says the Lord came to Abram. That's the word Yahweh. That's God. That's the name of God. Comes to Abram and sits with him in his tent and he begins to talk to him. So there we have a theophany. But here's here's the concern that I think is a, a perfectly reasonable concern. And that is that Abraham, and I'm saying it this way because I'm trying not to word it incorrectly. Abram never says, hello, Melchizedek. So if Melchizedek in those few years was the king of Salem, he's also the theophany of God in the earth, and you pay your tithes to him because of it or something of that sort. Why does he not say so in Genesis 18? And that opens up several questions. And I'm going to respond this way. There's several things to be said. We're not trying to be detailed. We're not, we're not, hey folks, everybody say praise the Lord. Everybody say it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Could be several reasons that he doesn't say, hey, this is, this is Melchizedek. And I'm going to tell you what I think, but it's just a possibility. First of all, how can we expect to comprehend God's decision regarding his appearance in a theophany? How could we? We know almost nothing about it. It's like saying, I I can tell you all about the middle of the sun. We can't really say, for example, every time God appears in a theophany, does he look exactly the same? I'm going to suggest, no, he doesn't. 
In fact, God may choose to appear differently many times. He has appeared in many ways. How many have ever been, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. I can't, but Lord, I want to feel the Holy Ghost, but I need to talk about this tonight. Listen to me. I have been many a time that I was in the, how many have ever been in the presence of God so much that you could almost see the glory of God in the midst of his people? These things are mind-boggling and I don't think it's possible for me to say that Melchizedek didn't have a father and a mother, has no genealogy, but he's just an ordinary man and that therefore he could not be a theophany when in fact he may have been a theophany. And I have come to believe that's exactly what he he was. And it explains why we read what we read in Hebrews 7. And we're going to read just a little of it here in just a moment. So we, we, we can find it very, very complex. For example, why does God appear in a certain form? What kind of a man did he look like? Was he black? Was he white? Was he dark skinned? Was he tan? Was his hair kinky? Was it straight? Was it, what was it? The point I'm making is... Don't get me going. Nobody knows what he looked like. Or whether Abraham recognized him or not. To suggest that we would know all of that in three verses is asking far too much. But when they tell us he had no father or mother, we need to believe that. How many knows we need to believe every word of the Bible? All right, so that's what I'm. That's my point. And number, and then we keep going. Could he not appear differently at at will? Now I want to look at the second concern. Everybody say Amen. Number two, there is no other record of a theophany living for an extended time on the earth. I find this very, very troubling and difficult to believe, because the very definition of a theophany, theophany in Greek means a temporary appearance of God. God appearing in a temporary form. Now, how temporary is that? Now, I'm going to respond and, of course, say that uh, I don't believe that he lived, okay? Now, okay, shoot arrows and and, and send your uh, grenades and all the rest. I don't believe for one minute that Melchizedek lived on the earth just like an ordinary man and was on this earth for a humpteen years. I don't think that was the point at all. I think that's why we're only introduced to him. He was there. I don't know how long. I don't know the hours, the days, the months. The fact of the matter is nobody knows that. Now, if you believe he's just an ordinary man, then he was born, had a mother and a father. Many commentaries say they must have died, and that's why it was expressed this way, but that's not so. Not so. It's just an inability to deal with the fact that he was not just an ordinary man. There's something about him that's very amazing, and to base the entire ministry of Jesus on it and say, he's just an ordinary man, three verses about him, and that's the end of that story. I'm not buying that anymore. There's something about Melchizedek that defines what Jesus was, and that is a ministry that was what? Everlasting. That's what is critical about Melchizedek. Either his priesthood is eternal or it's zero. Because we already had a priesthood. It was called the Levitical priesthood. And if a new priesthood is coming along, in fact, this is exactly what Hebrews tells us. We've got a new priesthood. Now, let's respond to this question of a living theophany. Everybody say, praise the Lord. 
A living, in other words, uh, and there is a third, but I'm, I'm, I've left it out because I'm going to address it in a different way. All right, first of all, the mystery of Melchizedek includes how long he would have been on the earth. That's a mystery. Everybody say mystery. So if it's a mystery, it's a mystery. If you could solve it, it wouldn't be a mystery. Oh, I know that. I know the answer to that. And all of you Sherlock Holmes folks out here that have the answer, you need to tell us because if you know how long he was on earth and what he looked like and why he did so, it's no longer a mystery. We need, we'll have to change the Bible and fix that. Or we could say, well, it was a mystery, but now it's no longer a mystery because Sherlock figured it out and knows exactly what he looked like. In our culture, we don't even know if we're a boy or a girl. So I don't think we're going to be solving any great mysteries anytime soon because we are a confused and troubled generation. But I'm telling you, I don't have to have all the answers, but I believe the word of God. Does anybody believe the word of God here tonight? I believe the word of God. And so if, if he's just an ordinary man, that's possible. Bible doesn't say that he wasn't. doesn't say he was a theophany. We're going to let the scripture speak, and then we have to decide. Do you think that's a theophany? Do you think that's just an ordinary man? All right? So it involves how long he was in Salem. If briefly, it's reasonable to conclude that only, now listen to me, that only Melchizedek and Jesus were in this priestly order that would mean nobody in this building is concerned of it but I'm going to be very clear for those who are not in this building and maybe some of the 50,000 that listen to the website all right there was not a priest that followed Melchizedek there was not a priest before Melchizedek the order began and ended with Melchizedek For one simple reason, there was no end to his priesthood. He didn't hand it down to Bubba. He didn't hand it down to Mama. He didn't hand it over here at the pizza parlor. He is forever the order of the priesthood that is the order of Jesus Christ. Well, that tells me right there, we're not talking about just any ordinary king. We're not just talking about just any ordinary person. And so it is. So there are only two Now, some people think that Jesus and Melchizedek were the same person. That is to say that Melchizedek was the human person just like Jesus was. That can't be because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. How many knows Jesus was born in Bethlehem? We're not talking about him being the born person of Jesus. We're talking about the same person. I believe this now. The same person that was born in Bethlehem as Jesus is the same person that was Melchizedek. And that is the person of God. God came in the form of Melchizedek. That's why he was the king of what? The king of righteousness. All right. Now let's go to the next one. Here we go. I'm going to go a little faster because we're we're now going to work through a couple things here. Everybody say, praise the Lord. Come on, kind of pinch yourself. Uh, uh, Drink a little coffee. No, you can't drink coffee, but uh, uh, something. Here we go. Next one. We're just waiting on the next slide. Here we go. Now, like certain of the church fathers, not, not lots of them, but plenty of them, I too am convinced now, I should have said, but you know, I've never, I've never said this, never put it in writing until tonight. 
in spite of the uncertainties or the questions or the concerns, and in spite of the skepticism of modern scholars, which is most scholars today, if you told them you believe that he was a theophany, they would say, wow. And you know Greek and Hebrew, they laugh at you. Just like they do when you baptize in Jesus' name. Just like they do about a lot of things. So, hey, we're getting used to it. All right? So, in spite of the skepticism, I'm now convinced that Melchizedek was not an ordinary mortal, but a theophany of God. Now, we're going to go on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back, of course. Now, I gave you a list up there. How many can see the name Origen, Didymus, Ambrose? I use Ambrose. Yes, I will stand behind it. Ambrose did, in fact, say that Melchizedek was God. He said it. All right? And I happen to have it in Greek and English, so I'm telling you he said it. And I know some have said Ambrose, well, he never said that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And if they can't read it in Greek or some kind, if they can't read English or whatever, wait until you get the evidence. And then you have others. And then, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls are lots and lots of people. These are just an example. What I'm trying to tell you is, been plenty of people believe that Melchizedek was not just an ordinary man, no matter what modern scholars are saying. All right, now, let's look at uh, David's divinely inspired view of Melchizedek. In other words, all those hundreds and hundreds of years, finally we have the psalmist David saying in Psalm 110, and are we up there? Okay, here it comes. Next slide. You're going to see a modern rendition of the priest, uh, Levitical priest, And Psalm 110. Now, let's read it together. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here we have the basis of the Hebrews chapter 7. The reason there's a Hebrews chapter 7 is because there's a Psalm 110 verse 4. That David prophesied, and that's exactly what you have here. Because nowhere in any of the documents of Scripture does it say, Thou art a priest forever after the order. That, that doesn't come until Hebrews. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is showing us that Jesus is going to implement a brand new priesthood and when it says after, how many see, let me find a pointer. Here we go. I know that you think I'm not going to stop, but I'm, I am going to actually stop. All right, now see here, kata, after, that's int- I'm reading, I'm pointing this out, is because it's, it's important to the overall question of Melchizedek. Kata does not mean after in, it, it can mean that, I'm not, I'm not disputing the possibility of using it, but kata is a Greek word that means according to. According to or in accordance with. So does it mean, okay, here's a, here's a priesthood. That, that's just a man way back there in Genesis. Everybody say, praise the Lord. I'm trying to make a theological point here that's critical to who Melchizedek is and why I can no longer espouse that he was just a man that lived way back there in the first few pages of Genesis. He, his, his priesthood, Jesus is according to, it's in the exact pattern. It is following in the accord it was set up divinely it it isn't just some always a whole lot like this guy that was way back there who happened to be a priest hey let me tell you something folks if god gets ready to set up a priesthood he's gonna have a priest hallelujah god can do anything king and priest according to or in accord with melchizedek now everyone say forever and i told you we'll come back to this for thou art a priest what Forever. So if Melchizedek died, 
Now you can say what you want. You can argue. I, I've not, no problem with it. Say he died. We'll talk about it till Jesus comes. If you say Melchizedek died, then you have a problem. Because what does that do to his priestly order? So the answer usually is, well, he died, but symbolically he didn't. In other words, we don't know when he died. We never saw a tombstone. So let's just say he lived forever. Now, what if we said that? All the people we don't know where their tombstones are, they're living right now. We could vote for them. I want to vote for all the people that died that I think are living. I want to vote in their place because they must be living somewhere because I don't know where. So the idea, I know it's, I know I'm making fun a little bit. I'm trying to tell you why I can't buy into it. If he died, then so died the order of which he instituted. It was to be an eternal order. And the only way I can see that that order... Now, personally, if, if you think he died and somehow symbolically he lived and that gets you through and you still have Jesus as Lord of Lords, I'm not condemning you. I'm telling you that it makes far better sense to me that he never died because he couldn't die because he was God in a theophany. That's who Melchizedek was. That's why he was called the King of Righteousness. Now, I know in, uh, you, even though it's not a Hebrew word, you could have translated Melchizedek, he's a righteous king. And, and that doesn't in and of itself make him God. But it surely is an interesting title for a man who just happens to be a king over there and has three little verses about it. No, no. Uh, David prophesied, I have sworn, I will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. Hallelujah. Everybody, let's praise the Lord. Come on, we only need a few more minutes. Thank you, Jesus. You're a priest forever, and we give you praise. Now, let's read it together. Let's go to the next slide. We're just going to read through some verses because when we come back, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 7. So let's see how far we can go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, I'm going to read verse 1, you read verse 2, priest of the Most High God, whom Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Read verse 2. Here we go. To whom also? First being by interpretation. And after that, which is? All right, I'll read verse 3. Without what? Without? Without? All right, that's three things. He had no father. It said without. He had no father, no mother. Now, of course, all the theologians say, well, of course he had a father and a mother. To which I say, okay, I get it. But why would we immediately discount what it actually says? He had no father, mother, or descent. Now, descent is actually the Greek word. We're now in Hebrews. This is in Greek. We have a Greek New Testament. And descent is just the word. I don't mean just the word, but it is the word genealogy. It had no genealogy. In a book, how many knows that Genesis is the book of genealogies? Adam and Eve. How long did they live? How many knows the Bible tells us how long they lived? Folks, now you listen to me. The book of Genesis is the book of genealogy. 
And here's a man, three verses, not a word. Now, Genesis didn't say he didn't have a father and a mother. Hebrews is telling us that. Because David prophesied that his priesthood was forever. So if he had a, as far as David was concerned, now, I know all you folks, you're going to say, why, you're misinterpreting David. Okay. As far as I am concerned, David is interpreting Melchizedek as living forever. And certainly the writer of Hebrews is. All right, let's go. Here we go. Now let's go to the next verse. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, wait, wait. Go to the next one. We're almost, we're almost there. Everybody say, praise the Lord. Come on, I'll move a little faster. You'll think it's going to go faster. All right, now, now <clears throat> this to me doesn't sound like symbolism based on simply uh, there being no record of his parents or his death. That to me is just on the border of being unbelievable. That he had no, he's without father and mother because we don't have any record of his father and mother. I mean, well, the first question we should ask then, I'm going to just talk to you doubters here, is why don't we know about his father and his mother? Why? This is the book of records. This is what Genesis is. All these other, we even know the kings, these wicked kings, we know who their grandparents were and, and what they ate for breakfast. We even know the size bed some of them slept in. But we don't know a thing about the guy who the entire plan of salvation is based upon his priestly order. Okay, so I'm not sold on that it's just symbolism. Now, so if, if it is just symbolism, how was his priesthood continual? Everyone say amen. How was it? If he died, it wasn't continual. If he died, folks, now wait, wait, wait. Don't judge me. I want you to think for a minute. If he's dead, is his priesthood still active? No. That's the whole point of Hebrews 7. If he's dead, there is no priesthood. All right? How would a type based on silence, meaning the silence of who his parents were? In other words, here's a type. We don't know who his parents were. Like I could say, I think you get it. Everybody wave your hand, say praise the Lord. And I'll, I'll pretend you're saying that you get it. So a type based on silence, how could that convince David or Israel? Oh, we didn't know his parents. We don't, I don't know if his mother's name was Maggie or, or Muffin. So we'll just say he lived forever. Folks, I'm going to tell you what I think of that. That's flimsy. It doesn't work for me. We don't know who his father and mother are, but it didn't say we didn't know who they were. It said he didn't have any. Okay? And I believe the Bible. I, folks, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. He's without father and without mother. Now, could there be a typology that would allow for that language? I think so. There are ways to talk that way, but not in this case because Hebrews undoes it. Number two, why would David say forever if that order actually ceased and, but we just don't know when or have a report of when? Number three, what might that say about the truth of Christ's priesthood or might it be that so much of doubting modern scholarship could never embrace the truth about who he really was? Maybe, I don't know. Just saying, might it have an impact? Especially if Melchizedek's order really wasn't forever. In other words, he died. Now you might argue, I know that. I'm just being a little harsh here. 
that, well, it lived on. Even in his death, it lived on. You know, he's still alive. Of course, the whole point of Jesus is that he died and lived, and therefore his priestly order continues. It's never, ever going to end. How many knows Jesus is alive forevermore? Hallelujah. Praise God. All right. But if it, was, what, if it really wasn't forever, but merely a symbolic forever or a literary device for we don't know who his mother was, was she Molly or Mary, then I don't understand how the Bible could speak this way. Just because I don't know anything about someone's life or death does not mean I can't say that they live forever. All right, now let's keep going and let's look at uh, two more points. And we're now going back to uh, verse 3, Hebrews 7, 3. Uh, but made like unto the Son of God. It wouldn't say made like unto the Son of God. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. All right. That was, that was okay. We, we, some of us said made like unto the Son of God. All right. Now, there's two, two ways to go with this expression. It's Bible, verse 3. We just read it out loud together. Now I'm going to refer to, uh, speak about why this does not negate the possibility that Melchizedek was a theophany. Number one, a theophany of God could not be the son of God that was prophesied because the son of God or God with us, as we find in Matthew 1, was God born as a genuine human. That is to say, God was incarnate. God became a man. He became a man. He lived it. He, if he's going to get out of the man, he's got to die. See, that's different. That's different than a theophany. Everybody say theophany. All right. And everybody say the son. All right. That's two separate things. The son is God coming in human form and born a baby. The other is God coming like a man. That's why it says he was made like unto the son of God. Therefore, it does not negate does not negate. He's like it. He resembled it. Now, does that mean he looked exactly like Jesus looked when he was 30? I highly doubt it. I don't care. I don't know, but I do doubt it. It makes no difference in my mind unless you're trying to answer who, who did Abraham see when he walked up to his tent, and then you might want to think that through. It might explain why Abraham did not Say hello, Melchizedek. Now, number two, if Melchizedek was a theophany, which I believe now he was, he would not have been a man born of humans. The theophany instead was the temporary appearance like, but not actually man. He was, in fact, God in the appearance of man. Now, let's read verse four. Here we go. Next overlay. We're almost done. We're going to read a couple more verses. Let's, I'll read verse four. You read verse five. You ready? Now consider how great this man was unto whom even, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you with me here? We're here. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. All right, you read verse five. Of the sons of Levi who received the office have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren. All right, you see what he's saying. Abraham gave tithes to someone who was so great a man that the priesthood of Levi, which was in Abraham at the time, bowed down and said, here are, uh, you are the priest of the most high God, king of 
Salem, king of righteousness, and gave him a tenth of all the spoils. He didn't keep a thing. He said, I didn't even keep a shoestring. He gave it all back to the king of Sodom, and it burnt up with them when, in chapter 19. He said, because I will not have it said that I was made rich by the king of Sodom. Which is another thing altogether. Verse 6, I'll read. But he whose descent is not counted from them, that is the Levites, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him. That had the promise. Read verse 7. And... You see that? In other words, who is better, Abraham or Melchizedek? Melchizedek. Because the one who receives the blessing is the greater. Now let's go to verse uh, let's let's go to verse eight. First of all, scripture seems to me to imply more than mere symbol in the mystery surrounding Melchizedek. Okay? Everybody say amen. David's prophecy. The confidence of Hebrews, that's spelled wrong. We'll fix it later. And the reality of the superiority of Jesus' salvation rests on the actual. I want to say actual. You see that? I put a different color. Actual eternal nature of Melchizedek's priesthood, not semantics. It's not just, oh, well, we don't know if her name was Molly. We should not be too quick to suppose that superiority of salvation to be founded upon a mere symbol. That is, we don't know who his parents were, so we'll symbolically say he didn't have any. Nor to doubt the power of the supernatural in God's activity. How many believes that God can do anything tonight? I feel the Holy I feel like God wants to heal somebody. Let's lift our hands and say, Father, I believe you're the healer of my body. Hallelujah. You're the God of heaven and you know me. Praise God. Praise God. I feel the healing virtue of the Spirit. The very nature of the belief, I mean of the brief biblical account, that is the three verses, may be evidence that God provided more in Melchizedek than mere symbol. And I believe that to be so. That is, in fact, he is a uh, theophany. Verse 8, the priest, I'm reading from the New Living now, New Living Translation. The priests who collect tithes, you say, why are you reading the New Living? Because I want to. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are. Why? Read it with me. He lives on. Now, folks, I could have translated it myself. I, I'm carrying the added weight of it being Phil Comfort from Chicago who translated the New Living that the Bible says we are told that Melchizedek lives on. Well, that's it for me. No more am I going to say, well, he couldn't have lived on. He had to die. Everybody dies. Yes, everybody dies, but... If he was a theophany, he would never have died. would have been no need to die. God can do what he chooses to do. Let's lift our hands and praise God. We're going to stop here. Father, I know that you're mighty. You're mighty. You're good. Hallelujah. You're the healer of our body. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to, we're going to be dismissed. I want us to thank God for what he's done for a Sister Latta. Let's praise God for a miracle in her body. The doctors are calling it a miracle. I serve a mighty God. A mighty God. God. He's a mighty God. Hallelujah.
and I praise you, I lift your name, and I glorify you, oh God. You are worthy tonight. One more time, can we just we just give him, wave him a little praise, lift your hands. The Bible says lift your hands and give praise unto the Lord, because he alone is worthy. And I magnify you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. Nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. 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 How many love the word of God tonight? Praise God. Brother Fritz, come and dismiss us in prayer. We're going to let you go. I'm sorry for my voice being so raspy. But... uh, but we're going to pray and Brother French lead us. Whatever you feel, any, any other announcement, let us know. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for your goodness, your touch, for revelation, God. I pray that we carry your word with us throughout this week. Bring us back, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And touch our air conditioners, Lord. Amen. Praise God.